1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. I'm well. I trust all our listeners are well, but
2: let's not talk about health because uh, Giles, the world of electricity uh, and energy is is going bonkers at the moment with announcements left, right and centre. What would you like to start with?
1: Well, just to point out that actually electricity and the decarbonisation of the grid is actually quite crucial to our long-term health. So I don't mind talking about health a little bit. But no, look, um, Matt Keane, once again, um, has come to centre stage. The federal government has come back, well, Scott Morrison's come back from the UN, sort of talking about possibly maybe having a net zero target by 2050. And Angus Taylor possibly talking maybe about having a roadmap for net zero at some time, which might be unspecified. And Matt Keane's popped up reminded everyone that every state and territory has got a net zero by 2050 target, so it can't be that hard, and really quite extraordinarily looked at their own emissions profile, discovered that their 35% reduction target um, by 2030 is going to be achieved quite easily. And so they've improved it. They've upped it. They said, well, we can do better than that. Let's go for it. And they now have a 50% reduction target, which is about online line with the US, um, about online line with Japan, and getting pretty close to where we need to have emissions reduced by uh, for a two-degree scenario and getting closer towards where we need it to for a 1.5-degree scenario.
2: Yeah, so, uh, Giles, I think Scotty Morrison, I uh, don't know about a road map, I think he needs an airline map and a city map of Glasgow to work out where it is, because obviously he doesn't seem to seem to know very much at the moment. He's um, not going, David, he's not going. Well, maybe he doesn't need a map then, but he can, he can send it as a gift to someone that will go. I guess Angus is going to go. Um, look, as far as Matt Keane goes, that's a great announcement and, and obviously we fully support it. I will point out that they're only probably talking about scope one emissions for those people that want to be technical. Uh, New South Wales is still going to be a very large coal exporter into the foreseeable future. Uh, And, you know, you have to take these sort of things into account. But still, uh, I I think Matt Keane is proving that one, you can can build a consensus around uh, renewable electricity and climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get the nationals on board uh, and get them to change their tune if you're good at politics. Uh, and, and the second thing he is doing is making himself very popular about it and uh, showing that this can be a winning strategy for politicians of
1: the left or right uh, persuasion if they're just good at their job. Yeah, no, exactly, yes. And and look, he's talked about the roadmap. He's talked about the jobs, the 9,000 jobs, or actually it's probably a bit more than that. But I mean, anyway, a lot of jobs, $37 billion, I think, in new investments. And those would be the wind, solar and battery storage, uh, plants and the all the uh, renewable energy zones and the transmission that goes with it um, and he's also um, announced this week 25 million dollars to peak um, to sort of sorry clip peak energy demand I don't think we actually have to worry about peaks anymore it's more like minimum demand but because um, we saw a couple of records fall during the week as well in the renewable share but um, but that was pretty interesting too David Yes, no. It's great to have some demand management
2: uh, support being factored in there. Another thing that, uh, for me, was just as important as the quad uh, meeting as as what Scott Morrison may or may not have committed to, was the kind of quasi commitment from Japan to the same thing, which is of course uh, our biggest uh, thermal energy trading partner for for gas and for and for coal. And they've got a new tr- uh, Prime Minister, so we'll have to wait for another few weeks to see what, if anything, he says about that. But it does bring interest to mind, and I want to get on to our special guest this week, uh, Giles uh, Gerard-Reed, uh, talking, who will talk about what's been going on with Europe and UK gas prices, uh, which is a very interesting topic. But as, as many of our listeners may have seen from... Coal and gas and oil prices and carbon prices and lithium prices have all gone absolutely ballistic. I mean, thermal coal, uh, whether you look in in China or in Australia, is pretty much at record levels. Uh, They're they're running out of gas, uh, seemingly, if it's going to be a cold winter in, in Europe. And uh, Gerard's got some uh, points out that, in fact, renewable energy is not that much down in Europe overall when you take into account the solar in the south, but the wind certainly is. So I I don't think it's a a stick-to-heat renewable energy over the head with. Uh, But it does show this kind of uh, difficulty that you have when building coal and gas and oil assets takes a lot of capital expenditure. It takes a lot of nerve. uh, And can you do that? Yeah, you know, when, when you're when the world is moving away from supporting it. You know, it's hard to get finance for a coal mine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's hard to also find the the reason to do it. So what we find is that you've got a shortage of uh uh, of supply developing, even as China, which runs the world, has sort of pushed up its demand for electricity enormously this year, enormously. And this has made a huge demand on, on, because most of their electricity is thermal, so it's pushing up power prices, uh, and, it, and it's causing blackouts. Uh, in China, and and so this is a really, really big sort of. This is the start of a problem that's going to re-emerge. You know, we need all this thermal energy, or the world does right now. China runs on it. It can't turn the light. It can't switch off it in a day. But meanwhile, no one wants to finance the underlying infrastructure. But uh, so I think it's a developing issue. Uh, maybe we should listen to what Mister Reed has to say about it. Let's have a
1: listen now. This is David talking to um, uh, Gerard Reed earlier on this week
2: it's a pleasure to uh welcome gerard Reed, partner at alexa capital uh to the energy insiders uh how how are you gerard great good i'm looking forward to the conversation so you know i guess europe's uh we here at energy insiders we try to get around the world we've been to vietnam uh not that long ago into the united states and and uh occasionally but we don't do enough talking about europe as far as i'm concerned and Europe's a a leader in global carbon policy. But right now, between Europe and the UK seems to have got its knickers in a knot, if I can use a phrase like that, because gas prices seem to have gone through the roof, which has caused uh, people a lot of uh, issues. If we start with the UK, uh, why is it exactly that gas prices, or what can you say about the gas situation at the moment?
3: All right. Well, listen, I suppose... Where do we start? All all roads lead lead back to Asia. Uh, And the reason I say that is we now have a global gas market and the European gas market price is now tied largely to what's going on globally. And what you're seeing is massive increases in demand uh, in Asia, um, particularly in China. I think if you look in China, uh, what you're seeing is probably 15% increases in demand year on year. Um, And just to put that into perspective, that's probably like the demand of Italy, a country like Italy. Um, That's just for China. (laughs) And and that's where it starts. Because if I'm Russia and I'm going, well, where am I going to supply my gas to? Well, I'm going to supply it to the guy that gives me the highest price. And that just happens to be into China. And that then has an impact across the rest of Europe. And, uh, And what's also happened in Europe is we've had some Extreme weather events, I would say, um, over the last year. I mean, starting with just we had a cold winter, uh, particularly in continental Europe, Germany, um, cold winter, and then actually a long cold spring, and gas demand went through the roof. And uh, and then what's happened then in the summer is we've seen. Um, We've seen extreme weather conditions, particularly in Southern Europe. So we've seen record temperatures in Europe and in, say Italy. But right across that belt, Spain, Italy, Southern France, Italy, across to Greece, um, people are turning on their air conditioning, right? Because that's how they keep themselves cool. Guess what? Then you need to have electricity. And what we're seeing at the margins, the, the generations that are turned are on, which are determined the power prices are gas, right? And gas has got more expensive so hence power prices go up as well
2: and if we just uh i don't want to spend all the time on on the uk but it's there where i guess uh, the uk is very heavily dependent on gas for electricity but it's also dependent on gas uh you know within people's houses uh, uh, although that's going to change i guess slowly but I understand that the gas, uh, or I've read that the gas situation in the UK has, has got worse because on the one hand, retailers have got their prices they can sell at are fixed. Uh, but but the, as, as we're talking about, the input price has gone uh, through the roof, which is a classic case for how to go broke. Uh, and secondly, um, UK doesn't have any gas storage, which seems absolutely nuts. Yeah. Uh, it- i got that about right more or less oh yeah, yeah
3: yeah you do i mean the gas storage thing is and you i like the way you said it it's nuts what's really crazy is you think where is our gas coming from today well it's coming from eastern europe it's coming from pipelines that really largely come from russia or the caspian sea or something like that right and who's the last guy on the end of the line it's the uk and uh, I i find it quite I'm, talking, I'm quite shocked, actually, as, because you just, just said yourself, they don't have st- enough storage. Yeah, it starts there. So you're at the end of the line and you don't have storage. I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's what you're seeing. And let's be clear, we're only in summer now. Um, and I know there's a little bit of stress in the UK because there's sort of two unpl- unplanned outages um, uh, with two of the nuclear plants. And then you've got a fire at one of the interconnectors into France. And suddenly you're down three gigawatts of power. Uh, you have to put in emergency measures, and, and 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 I think probably National Grid is praying that we don't have a cold winter.
2: Absolutely, but I understand that the forecasts are it is going to be a cold winter uh, across Europe, or at least that's one article I read. Now, if we come back uh, and, and and talk about Russia, uh, you know, I guess they get gas to uh, China if they want through Turkmenistan. I think we ended up being quite a, a pipeline supplier, but. There's some story too, uh, I don't want to spend too long on it, about Russia's building a new, or Gazprom's building a new pipeline at the moment that's somehow restricting flow through or that's causing them to be, uh, can you explain that bit of it to me?
3: Well, what's happened is, I mean, if you look at uh, what's been going on in terms of gas from Russia, what's happened is that the gas transits through the Ukraine have collapsed. Um, that's that's the fact. Uh, it has collapsed. So, what's what you now have is North Stream One, which is this one of the first gas pipeline that goes from Russia directly through the Baltic. I mean, that's now the largest pipeline in terms of import capacity into Europe. Uh, we now have obviously North Stream Two coming online. It's now being it's now being built, but it hasn't been switched on. Right, it has to get some permissions and stuff like this. But the really, really interesting thing is, and we have to ask the question, well, why have gas flows through Ukraine collapsed? And I think that's political, uh, that's what I would say. But the real impact of it is that gas storage in Europe um, is significantly low. And and that, of course, is gonna have implications of winter. And I think there's another thing that we have to sort of um, add to that, um, which goes back to sort of government's role in the energy world, is that European domestic supply of gas has collapsed over the last few years. And it continues to collapse, whether it's in the UK, whether it's Netherlands, whether it's Norway. So we've got a collapsing supply on the one side, and then you've got this big bear called Russia on the east side, And then we have lack of storage and you've got some extreme wind events or weather events. Um, That's not a good situation to be in, as I said, coming into the winter months. And that has really um, massive ramifications because it's not just about gas prices going up and it's bad for the customer. It's really you've got a whole pile of retail utilities, particularly in the UK, who what they've done is they've got fixed price agreements with their customers and then they're buying the electricity largely unhedged from the market and you know that's they're going to go bankrupt so we've seen for example one of the one of the sort of well capitalized uh, and growth companies in the uk bulb uh, you you know really looking around now at this point in time for emergency financing right and there's a whole pile of smaller ones i think there's four or five of these retail utilities have gone bankrupt this year and I would say the exact same is also going to happen in Ireland as well,
2: right? So yeah, it's um, the ramifications of
3: bad planning and around gas are not good.
2: But it's not just bad planning, is it? I mean, it is bad planning. But on top of that, you've got to, uh, uh, they're not allowed to put their gas prices up more than a certain amount, are they, at, at, to, the, to the household customers? I mean, that's that's Enron, or over here in we had a situation in New Zealand exactly the same. What I'm trying to understand is that the, I guess, is it the retailer's fault for not uh, uh, having the right hedging contracts in place at, on the supply side, uh, or is it uh, sort of the government's fault for not letting the market actually put final prices up? Like in petrol, you know, uh, uh, if if the oil price goes up, you put the petrol price up, and you know, it's not necessarily that bad.
3: Well, okay, so it depends on the country and the contract that you have, right? And each country in Europe is, is very different. If the, the the fact about it is that most retail customers have fixed price agreements for maybe up to a year. Uh, and normally what will happen is a utility will hedge that out. Uh, they will just say, okay, so just take the case of Eon, right? Eon is in terms of is one of the biggest utilities in Europe, I think it probably has the biggest customer base and it owns no generation, right? So what does it do? It sort of takes a view in the future and says, okay, we're going to secure gas and electricity for our customers at a a particular price and you hedge it. And and they've done that, right? Um, But what you have is a whole pile of small guys who have not done this, have not done this. That's number one. And then, as I said, number two is the element which you're talking about, which is that there are certain countries which just don't allow... You to pass these energy price increases on to the customers, and and that's certainly been the case in the UK. It's been a very highly political area, um, and a lot of interference in the government. And um, so I would say the fault lies in between the two. That's what I would say.
2: And Gerard, you've it really interested me because I, I I read this stuff and then I don't fully understand what I'm reading. But you're saying Eon doesn't is is a, is the biggest retailer of. Energy, gas, and electricity in Europe, but doesn't actually—it's not vertically integrated. It buys all its stuff in uh, on, on a portfolio basis. Exactly.
3: So, in the case of Eon, what Eon did was it sold off its generation. Right? It, it had this um, merger, stroke, consolidation with RWE, and they got rid of their whole uh, generation portfolio. So there, they've got the biggest short book
2: in europe in terms of power and does that work for them in terms of profitability i mean do you think the yet yeah, does it work it does at present because you're well hedged
3: but let's see what happens in a few years time right so it's it's there is a big debate whether you should be vertically integrated or not in the markets and there are some utilities let's just take the case of sse in the uk what they've done is they've got rid of the whole customer business so all they are is a generator and uh, a renewable generator and a grid owner right um, and you're seeing that tendency across the board actually is for, is for is for is for companies to actually specialize you've got specialized grid companies you've specialized generators and that's probably just the nature of the way the market is 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 formed here but listen that short book for eon I mean I like, I can imagine like if prices stay if I look at gas prices today I think they're at Fifteen dollars per mmbtu, right in Europe. I mean, a year ago they were at four. <laughs> so yeah, you... yeah.
2: No, Fifteen is like an Asian LNG and G price. Uh, exactly. You know. Exactly. Uh, and it's probably even more than that in the spot, but that's a contract price. Uh, but um, so this is now uh, that's great. But I mean, let's turn about what the thing in uh, in gas means for electricity. And I guess we can start with this, the story uh, that the wind output for a couple of weeks and maybe a bit longer has been a bit soft this year. Is that right?
3: Yeah, but that's like that's not really what... That, that's, that's not important, right? It, it it's, not? That's, that's, not, that's not the issue that's going on, right? The, and by the way, people are talking about Northern Europe when they say that, right? If I go to Southern Europe like, you know, what you've seen is massive increases in solar production because they've had huge amounts of sunny days, right? So if you look at it across the continent, if you look at renewables production, it's not down year on year, right? So I, I think a lot of people are just sort of saying, "Wow, well, we can't rely on wind, et cetera, et cetera. And it's that old story we've heard in terms of anti-wind. I would say if you really look at the facts, what's happened is, number one, because we've had um, – yeah, what we've had is changes in the weather, particularly in southern Europe, which have had a massive impact. And what, what, what I mean by that is incredibly warm. And that has had a big impact on, um, on, obviously, demand. But on the supply side, it's also had a big impact on hydro. So what you've seen if you go to, say, Spain, Portugal, is that the, that the water levels in the mountains and in the reservoirs are really low. And that's, I would say, more the impact. And as I said, I'd add the other thing to that as well, as I've got nuclear power stations out in the UK and in France, and uh, a large of this again, a large part of this also is climate related as well, because it's very difficult to cool. These power plants. That's number one, right? If you got really warm, a lot yeah, of them
2: I, are warm, I, I think it's... I think we get I think we get that here in Australia. The, a lot of the things you talk about are sort of uh, stories that are fairly familiar uh, over here in that sense. But keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt.
3: No, no, no. So, so that's what you're saying. So, it's it's much more. I'm trying to make a point. It's much more complex than just saying, "Oh, we didn't have enough wind," right? yes yeah, no uh, that's
2: right that's what I I'm pleased you said that that's exactly what uh, I not that I was hoping to hear but I'm uh, it's it's great and so the oh so um, can we do you have a sense of how much electricity demand is is up across Europe is that uh, this summer say compared to a year ago
3: listen I haven't
2: seen that I, I haven't seen
3: the official figures because they I, I, they haven't come out but I I, I mean what what Anyone I'm speaking to in Southern Europe say, "Listen, they, they could well be at you know all-time highs, really." That's what they're sort of saying.
2: And uh, in terms of looking forward, what uh, is the prospects? I guess of, for new generation build, which I presume will be mostly um, well. Let's just talk. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. For 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 if I talk about how much new generation is going to be. Built and what kind of fuels it is over the next few years in line with, I guess, the European uh, targets. How are you thinking about it?
3: Well, actually, before I even answer that question, what I'd say is another little thing that we have to talk about, which is German nuclear, right? I think Germany is meant to close six nuclear plants by the end of the year. By I have the a year. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Will they actually uh, do that? Well, that's a good question. That is a really, really good question. Um, and I, if I was a betting man, I would say they're not going to close them. And I think what they will do is they'll definitely keep them on for a period of six months. That's what I would think. Um, and the reason for this is it's not necessarily Germany. It will be the other countries going, guys, we need to make sure that we've got enough power in this system here. Um, and don't forget, the European system is all interconnected. So if Germany sneezes, um, you know, France gets a cold. And that, that's the reality of where we're at. So I, I could see that happening. And having said that, listen, the German elections is next week. And so it's not something that they want to talk about before the election, right? Because it could be very controversial. So I mean, even, even
2: he... the, but, but even though we've been talking about uh, what i think will be a relatively short-term situation in the gas but maybe it won't because we can look at what's going on in coal and oil or even aluminium and stuff and see that short-term things aren't always as short-term as people think they are but nevertheless I- i'm trying to get a sense i think for how it's going to work out over the next five or ten years in europe uh what what's the general sort of direction okay, what,
3: what, what- right the, the general direction is that europe 's plans between two, between now and two thousand and thirty is to build five hundred gigawatts of renewables, and most of that will be onshore wind, solar and offshore wind that that's that's the European plan now to do that requires a radical and I use the word radical rethinking of how we run our electricity system and i 'm not seeing the necessary thinking. Um, and and, and thought go into how that system could look. And maybe I'd give a very simple example of this, is that today on a very good weather day, and a good weather day is lots of wind, lots of solar, Germany meets all of its peak power needs through renewables, right? 2030, on that same peak, you know, great weather day, Germany is producing twice as much power as it needs. And that has huge ramifications because at present what Germany does is just pa- pass it into Poland, pass it into France, somewhere. It's all interconnected. So you can do that. But you can see I'm giving my neighbors problems with that. And I'm not going into the other countries, right, because the other countries are going to increase their intermittent renewable. So to do that, you have to radically rethink how the power system works. And I'm not seeing that happening. I, I see a little bit, and by the way, in the UK. So if I... If you want to look at the future of the power mass, I think you really do have to look at what's going on in the UK. Why do I say that? Because it's a, an island. So if you're an island, you sort of you, you don't have the interconnection capabilities into other countries. Uh, you have to sort of think, well, well, how do I do this? How do I make sure the demand and supply balance? And they've been very, very innovative in terms of storage. I can be of the storage market in the UK. It's by far the biggest storage market in Europe. And um, there's no other country, probably, they're probably installing more storage this year in the UK than all of Europe put together, right? Um, so they're at the forefront of, of how you can run a system based on intermittent renewables. Um, but that would be my biggest concern is that, you know, you, there's a lot of talk, but there's not enough of real intense action yeah. actually put, 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 to create that system, right?
2: I'll come back to that because again, there's a lot of analogies that we have with Australia. Australia is obviously a very small market, but you know we have our rooftop solar coming through, and uh, like for the last two weeks, prices have been negative in the middle of the day every day, Uh, and they will be every spring uh, from here until something changes, uh, and it'll get worse every year. So that's that's uh, that's something we think about. But uh, I guess. First, let me ask about the firming side. We've already talked about it's very expensive to, to firm to firm with using gas at the moment, uh, uh, and but it's also going to be very expensive to firm with coal because, one, coal itself is expensive, and, two, the carbon price is whatever it is, uh, 40, 50 euros. I can't – what uh, at the moment? It was, it, was, it was up
3: at 60, yeah.
2: But... Yeah, uh, so no one wants to burn coal, and then – in the past, uh, I guess you would have got a lot of hydro out of places like Norway and that, and, and the firming cost would be down at like three euros. Uh, but overall, probably it's not quite like that at the moment. No. So, so look, the, the reality
3: is that the carbon price is also part of the reason why power prices have gone to the roof, because in a lot of countries, the price setter is not gas. It is in the UK gas, but in other countries it's it's coal, right? So, I go to Germany today; it's coal. If I go to Poland, it's coal, right? A lot of a lot of countries, the price header is still coal, and it's coal production cost plus carbon on top, really. That's really what 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 you're getting. So that's why I think I think Germany. I haven't looked at in the last few days, but it did hit like 100 euros a megawatt hour, right? And you could see that. Of that, if you were producing Maybe maybe twenty five, depending on whether these guys are hedged or not, it's 25, 30 euros a megawatt hour is probably carbon price, right? Yes. If you've got dirty coal, that's 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 the reality
2: you're, you've got. Um, I but think that's the not question better is it? That's not. That, I mean, the whole point about the carbon price is that's the signal that they want to send to the market. No, exactly, and that
3: requires you then to get rid of these coal plants. So then the question is, what's your alternative, right? And your alternative is you need to build generation really quickly really quickly in the next few years we're going to do carbonize. and we're not seeing this right um it's yeah. simple as that we're not seeing it
2: that, it is interesting and you know building generations not as easy as everyone wants because uh particularly my experience is that uh it's much more environmentally difficult to build firming generation other than batteries because there's if you know your, your, your hydro or whatever generally not everyone wants to have a dam uh, on top of their house, but uh, Can I just ask, in terms of the planning and the coordination, I'm not that clear. Is there a kind of like uh, a European body that plans the European system, or I mean, do the countries cooperate? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, no,
3: no, no. There there is very, very clear cooperation. So usually, what happens is the EU is setting targets um, uh, and directives. Directives are they're sort of telling you you need to do X, Y, and Z. And then the countries then have to put these international law. So the EU law really is the highest court of law in across across Europe, right? So that's where it starts. It's starting there. Um, but what you're often seeing is a real lag in between the EU's telling the countries this is what you need to do, and then the country's doing something, right? Um, and that's 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 part of the issue that we see. And I think I'd also say the other thing is. If you talk about uh, conventional generation, everybody's scared to build conventional generation because they don't know if this, you know, how uh, how long that asset is going to be around for, right? Uh, and that's why go back to the UK talking about gas storage. And the government hasn't talked about gas storage because if they mention it, they know that they'll have all the NGOs on top of them saying, "We don't need gas storage. What are you doing building fossil fuel capacity?" And so they didn't do it, right? And, and that's what you see across Europe as well, is that they're not thinking... It. Now, the UK, again, I want to go back to it. What I at least see in the UK is national grid top class, because what national grid is saying is, if we need to keep the system up and running on those January days, what we need to do is put in low-cost generation that we can use for those two or three days when, you know, peak demand goes through the roof. So what... What they've done is you've put in a capacity market and you've got a whole pile of batteries in there. You've got diesel gen sets in there. You've got gas, yeah, small gas peakers. That's what you're seeing. And if you're asking me the system going forward, it's not going to be large gas, uh, gas turbines or CCGTs. They, they, just don't, they don't work in this market where you require flexibility. And from a finance perspective, I'm not going to finance it because the CapEx costs of them are too high. But a reciprocal gas generation. Yeah, I can put that in.
2: Yeah, and so I can the, put the, the, the newest uh, gas plant uh, in Australia is is a recip uh, yeah. uh, because it's so modular. But it does have exactly. higher costs. But as you say, when you're providing power, who cares about the fuel? No, cost? but and but, then but, you've got hydrogen, uh, which I suppose is the is the big hope of the of the of the green uh, industry. Uh, and that's a big debate itself for those those few days, in like in winter and the height of summer in July or whenever it is. But uh, you, you've raised this point uh, about gas. Uh, and this is something that I think is very interesting because, you know, these days it's very black and white. We don't like coal or you do like coal, but mostly you don't like coal and pretty much the same for oil. But what is the attitude across Europe towards gas? Have, have, have people made up their mind about it now?
3: No, it's mixed. It's mixed. I mean, again, I would say that the, the, uh, the, the practicality is we do need gas, right? Okay, and it's cleaner than coal, so we might as well move from coal to gas. But again, if I go and put a gas uh, power station in there, it's fossil fuel, so you still have an element saying we shouldn't even be doing this. And yeah. so we, and companies the are really careful to do that.
2: Will it face Pardon? a carbon cost as it is at the moment, like under the current European scheme? Say, say that again, sorry. Sorry, uh, you know, we're talking about the carbon price being 60, but not everything actually pays the uh, 60 euro a ton, but not everything actually pays the carbon price. There's still a lot of exemptions. Does, does gas generation have to have to pay a carbon cost?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially if you go and put a new power plant in, right, you don't, yes a lot of I'd say a lot of companies have got free allowances and stuff like that, so that the, it's, a, it's a complicated market. But if you're going to put in new generation tomorrow, you're having a carbon cost to it, right? That, and that's, that's, the, that's part of the problem that you have, whether it's coal or gas or whatever. But I, I would say to you that, again, I'm coming from a financing point of view where if you ask me to finance, I don't really care about the, the risk for me when I finance something is high capex. So what I want to do is finance low capex and then I can get around my head to, uh, taking power price risk going forward. And that's why we super gas generators, even though they're more expensive from a levelized cost of energy, that's where they've been built because I, I've got lower capex than any other form of generation that's out there, right? And I, I can see that happening going forward that there's more and more of that type of, of, of generation going. in, And batteries the same thing, right?
2: Well, batteries are not low, uh, low on CapEx, but, uh, but, they, but they've got other advantages that, you know, they don't take up much more than a, uh, a few containers here and there. And, uh, and they, well, you know, no, no, very no, sorry, I,
3: I, let, let me correct you on that. Sorry. You're, if you've got a, a battery installation today, your battery installation in terms of CapEx costs is probably, in terms of compare it to a CCGT, it's probably at one third of the CapEx cost. Now, the issue is you have fuel costs and this, that, and the other thing, and, and, and. But this is the UK put in a, a capacity payment, and it wasn't CCGTs that were built. It was two things that were built. It was reciprocal gas generators and batteries. And that's, again, from the financing side because their capex costs are lower. And by the way, the capex costs of batteries are going lower, even lower. So you seeing even increasing amounts of them being built in this, in this market because the other thing that you had before where before... Batteries were being built just for the balancing market, right? Uh, National Grid needs it or, you know, Fulcic Hertz, they need somebody to come in and provide that balancing uh, in the market. Now you're not. You're sort of going, gee, I've got this. I've got this, you know, arbitrage opportunity that I didn't have before. And people are playing that. And I've seen some of the batteries in the UK market, which, and I've been involved in financing them, where suddenly payback periods on a CapEx point of view are now down to like, you know two to three years right in this environment
2: that's um, really interesting we love talking about batteries uh um and uh, uh uh so my two questions and we're going to run out of time uh in a, in a while my question number one are we going to see a lot more batteries do you think uh yeah that's the first question yeah uh, with, without a doubt
3: we're going to see more batteries and um, but
2: we still have
3: regulatory hurdles across europe the uk you don't but um There are a lot of countries where, for example, when you give you an example of what a lot of countries do is you have grid charges in and out. So I charge the battery, I pay grid charges. I I I, I get it. I I get it.
2: We we have that same issue here. And is a battery a generator or a consumer? Exactly. So you have that issue. You have that issue. And
3: And then you've got a lot of of grid operators who are very conservative and don't sort of say, oh, do we really want to accept batteries in there? No, no, no. We prefer to run with the old methods, Right.
2: And uh, the second question is on the duration of batteries because this interests me as well. Uh, the, 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 you know, I think batteries started out doing system services like frequency and go from a very short duration, but in the United States, they're all running up to four hours now. Uh, what, what's the trend in Europe? Uh, I, I
3: don't see that need for four hour duration at present. Um, I see What you see is the arbitrage gaps tend to be right when the sun goes down, right? That type of thing, which are very predictable. So you've got like an hour, two hour. That's the that's the type of thing that you're seeing now. Don't get me wrong; that will change, um, but right now I'm, I'm not seeing that trend.
2: Gerard, I don't think this will be the last time, if you're willing, that we'll talk about Europe because I've enjoyed this conversation super much, and I think I've only just uh, scratched the surface. But it's been absolute pleasure. Uh, uh hearing and I I I hope things go well for you guys.
3: No my my pleasure David thanks a lot no it's a pleasure to have a chat on this
1: and that was uh, Gerard Reed from Alexa Capital. Um David in- look <laughs> These rising prices, and, and as you mentioned before um, that interview, they're sort of happening not just in the UK, in Europe, in, um, in Asia, Japan, China, etc. I mean, the big question is, well, is this a sign that we should be investing more in thermal energy or do we actually is it a sign that we should be accelerating the transition to renewables?
2: Oh, I think it's a sign we should be accelerating the renewables, but it's also a warning sign that if you don't plan for it uh, in advance, Um, uh, and get the renewable infrastructure that you need, whether it's energy or power uh, or or storage built in front of uh, the thermal energy going away, then you're going to run into problems. You know, it's very difficult to leave the market to run this whole thing. Sure, you're getting a great signal now in Europe. (laughs) You're also getting houses that don't have any gas and a million customers, you know, retailers with a million customers going broke. So, Uh, you you really need some states people and some really good policy makers to see what's going to happen in advance and to get in front of the the market shortage. By all means, the market can run it, but some uh, planning wouldn't go astray. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, Giles, one of the big things that we didn't quite catch last week uh, was the COAG meeting here, or whatever they call COAG these days. And can you tell me (laughs) what actually came out of that?
1: Because I didn't work out if anything did. Well, it's, it's now called the very secret energy ministers meeting because we don't actually get to hear what actually happened. Um, it's now under sort of cabinet and confidence or some such. So we get rather an anodyne press release at the end of it from, um, Mr. Angus Taylor. What it did tell us was that's basically, and the interpretation is, is that basically the PRRO or well, this sort of fear capital capacity market that would favor the coal generators is pretty much dead in the water. Uh, all the states made clear that if you're going to have some sort of capacity market, we have to make it very, very clear that it's not going to favour incumbent technology and will be there to encourage new technologies. I think that's really important. And one of the interesting things that came out of it as well was uh, Shane Rattenbury, with the support of the other ministers, I think, um, talked once again about introducing the environmental element into the national electricity rules. Now, this has been absent. Um, It was whipped out in the last moment before the national electricity market was created in the late 1990s. It's been absolutely... Tragedy ever since every damn decision that's been made. Um, ever since has ignored the environment, ignored the climate, qu- quite often to catastrophic um, results and some really bad regulatory decisions and some really bad rules. So, if that can get back in, and gosh, if we actually do, even if we get a 250 uh, net zero target, that at least sort of create some sort of signal um, about the way that we should be investing and the way that we should be setting our rules and the way should we should be doing some regulation. So, I think that was important. And just while I'm keep on talking, the other thing that, um, the investors really feared was the um the marginal rules. Yeah. there you go now um that seemed to be sort of set aside or shunted or subject for further review um talking to some people in the market they're not quite convinced it's gone away completely but they're quite relieved that what was proposed um which scared the crap out of them um is not going to go ahead as is but we'll have to wait and see and how that evolves it's going to have to evolve without Kerry Schott and David Swift who stand aside at the end of this month um being October so it'll be interesting to see how the three heads of the remaining bodies AEMO, AEMC and AER get together and manage this basically this redesign
2: Yes, that's right, uh, Giles. uh, So it's interesting to hear that. Uh, The points I'd make are that uh, it is important if we write an environmental objective in the AEMC will pay attention to it uh, much more formally and indeed the AER, uh, sorry, the AEMO when the ISP, although it already calculates carbon emissions, but it can, it can, uh, the, the model for that much more explicitly, in the same way, I often think that two thousand and fifty is a pretty useless uh, sort of commitment because we all really need to focus on two thousand and thirty but the in truth, when you look at uh, public companies and the and the statements that they make if if there 's a net zero commitment by 2050 when they look at their balance sheet and how to estimate all their liabilities and uh, all the risks around them uh, they'll have to say like a coal or a gas company well how, how does our plans fit in with the net zero to 2050 uh, commitment you know and so actually it does have uh, a, a real meaning uh, and and implications for for businesses uh, even if the actions that
1: uh, will will get us to net zero by 2050 mostly have to be done by 2030. Well, exactly right. And I agree, 2050 is not quite the adequate target, but it, it is an important signal. And I'd actually probably point out that AEMO, at least in its ISPs, is actually is dialing in various scenarios which consider sort of emissions and, and climate change. And the AER, which is the regulator, does not, not because it doesn't want to, but because simply the rules don't allow it at the moment. So if that's changed, we're going to see um, a much more different perspective on things like judgments on transmission routes and some other sort of, there's, there's a microgrid situation out in Broken Hill, which is going sort of ice end up. So, so Charles,
2: because it's such a big week, I agree with all that. And so do our listeners, no doubt. But perhaps we should talk about the other rule change just very briefly coming up. Uh, I want to talk about two things. One is five minute settlement, uh, which you've got a couple of great articles. was a terrific article on your website today explaining what it means. And, and the other one is we seem to have moved into a new era of big project announcements, ENEL's 20 terawatt-hours of batteries, Tesla's order for six, six gigawatt-hours, uh, a Moroccan uh, 10 gigawatt solar project to,
1: to, to the UK. I mean, how big is big enough? Well, that's right. And your, and, your, and, and your normal hydrogen braggawatt, I mean, there's 10 gigawatts here and 20 gigawatts there. I mean, they're probably far off. And that's what I think I'm sort of, you know, we, we're saying it. And, and, and the, the feeling that we're getting from a lot of the developers out there is that there's a lot of corporate interest. So you talked about that 2050 signal. There's a lot of corporate and, and people have already got their own net zero targets by 2050 or even earlier. And, they're moving and, and, now. And that
2: was enough, Charles, to give uh, uh, one solar developer here, uh, Iver Adola, uh, to, to go ahead with the, is it the Avonlea, 190 megawatt solar farm yeah yeah,
1: 190 megawatts um we've had the dulacca um wind farm um just recently there's been a couple of others um people are reporting that there's a lot of development happening so people are sort of you know getting excited again and not sitting down waiting for um, state governments to do auctions and things like that. So that's pretty interesting. The five-minute settlement is really interesting. I mean, to go back five years ago when Sun Metals, the big zinc refiner first proposed it, they were sick of being rorted by this 30-minute settlement and sort of the withdrawal of capacity at the start of, fire, or start of the trading period and then plowing in afterwards. It was resisted fiercely by the coal and gas generators but now it's um, finally in place. Um, by the time this thing is being broadcast, it's probably been happening for sort of 12 or 15 hours. So it's going to be interesting to see how it actually um, pans out. But it should, at least in theory, be a, um, a spur for battery storage, demand management, virtual power plants and things like that. But and software, guess...
2: software, Giles, because uh, as, as that article on your website points out, I mean, it's very easy to make a mistake with five-minute settlement to be generating when you shouldn't be or not to be generating
1: when you should be exactly right so um i think there's a few software providers um who've been very pleased <laughs> recently and i know a lot of people have been investing a lot of money in systems um aemo i think i forgot to put it in the article actually spent 120 million dollars itself on uh, reconfiguring its system so um we'll find out if that's all working very soon um david is there anything else i think oh, i think we've just done a pretty good wrap, actually and um not quite record time but um enough time
2: yeah, no, I think we've covered a lot of things. Uh, it's hats off to uh, Origin Energy 2, which have managed to make a lot of money on their Octopus investment. Uh, you might question how the uh, moving to Octopus software here in Australia is going. That's one thing, but there's no doubt that uh, there's transaction evidence that they've doubled their money, at least on Octopus in the UK. Uh, uh, and that's well, there's a lot of money. So well done.
1: Absolutely, yes. Look, I can't get very excited about cons- um, customer management systems, but um, maybe I should. Um, thank you very much, David. Um, thank you very much for your interview with Gerard Reed. Um, thanks to all our um, listeners out there, everyone out there listening. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon, for their continued and ongoing support. And Charles, um, would- just Jane- just before you no, sign no. off,
2: you can't get so- you can't get uh, uh, excited about uh, customer management. But I think if you talk to the people who own Facebook and Instagram and uh, and LinkedIn and a few of those other things, uh, you, you know, they're probably uh, happy you're not competing with them. Otherwise, they'd be really worried.
1: <laughs> I'm not too sure what that means, David. But anyway, I'll, I'll think about that and I'll report back to the podcast next week. Okay, then. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen